HRN has a brand new look, but we're still sharing the same delicious stories. Invest in the future of food radio by becoming a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. I'm your solo co-host, Ethan Frisch, and my guest this week uh, makes some of the most delicious uh, frozen food I've ever tasted. I have uh, a whole stash of her products in my freezer right now, and I'm really excited to talk to her about how how the company got started and how she makes them. Uh, Ariana Tolka is the co-founder and CEO of Balkan Bites. Ariana, thank you for joining me. Ethan, thanks so much for having me. What is Balkan Bites and what do you make? Balkan Bites is a female and family owned frozen food business and we specialize in comfort foods from Southeastern Europe. Um, my family is originally from the Balkans. My mother is from Croatia and my father is Albanian from Kosovo. So right now we specialize in a dish called burek, which is a really flaky, savory, uh, stuffed phyllo pie. We make it in the shape of a spiral, and we sell it frozen, ready to bake. And what uh, what are some of the flavors that you make? What 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 are kind of the I don't know the, the classic flavors of burek? Yeah, so the most traditional flavors that we do make it's a, a spinach and cheese with a tangy feta cheese and a creamy ricotta cheese, and then we make a ground beef and onion with caramelized onions and uh, really succulent ground beef. And then we also make a cheese medley. So it's similar to the spinach and cheese. It has a feta cheese and ricotta cheese. That's typically eaten more for breakfast and lunch. We have a potato and onion. And then we have two flavors that aren't very traditional. We have a mushroom and goat cheese. And we have a chocolate and hazelnut, which is basically Nutella uh, stuffed in a flaky phyllo crust. And, and would you would you talk a little bit more about the process of making them? These are these are things that are uh, pretty technical, pretty complicated to make, um, with a lot of technique and a lot of uh, skill that goes into it. How how are you actually making the borax? Yeah, so we still make the bricks in a very traditional way. We stretch all the dough by hand and make the phyllo dough from scratch. So we don't buy the frozen dried phyllo dough that you see in the store. Um, and I think that's why our product is, is so different. We actually make the dough the day before and allow it to slightly ferment and rest. And then we stretch it by hand over a table until it's paper thin and you can actually see the table underneath and we don't use any flour to uh, to stretch the dough we only use melted butter and a little bit of extra virgin olive oil so that that's what really gives it the the flakiness and the golden brown color you see when you bake it so we we stretch them and we fill them with different fillings and then we freeze them so when you bake them at home they taste super fresh yeah, I uh, I just throw it in my uh, toaster oven for half an hour and it comes out perfectly. It's uh, it's really yeah. easy. Yeah, toaster oven, air fryer, oven. Apparently you can grill them. I haven't tried it myself, <laughs> but. <laughs> um, how did you get into this? Because you, you didn't, prior to starting the company, have a, a background as a chef. What was What was your journey to starting it? No, I, I never thought I would have a food business. I, I grew up loving food, and my family is comprised of incredible home cooks. Um, 
I grew up eating gourmet meals almost every night of the week. We rarely ate at restaurants. Um, but uh, I always thought that I would work for the UN one day or in international development. Uh, since you know my family is from the Balkans, I, I grew up witnessing what the effects of war and genocide uh, are on, on countries and the people who are displaced. So I thought that I would help them one day and, and work in war-torn countries or work with refugees. So I actually went to college and studied international finance and marketing. And I became really interested in microfinance, so uh, giving zero or low interest loans to mostly women around the world so they could start small businesses. Um, it was difficult to get a job doing that out of college, so I actually worked at a media agency and I, I learned brand strategy and it was super interesting, but uh, not, not my passion, I would say. Um, so I quit that job after almost three years and I went to Cambodia and I volunteered at a microfinance NGO. So that that was super eye-opening. I actually saw how the money worked on the ground. Um, people were, women were starting their own businesses. They were able to get out of abusive relationships because they now had an income of their own. So they would, you know, have little food carts selling food that they usually made at home or Vietnamese uh, or in Cambodian iced coffee. And they were able to support their families, support themselves and and gain independence finally. So I, I knew that I wanted to keep working in the nonprofit space um, in international development. And I allowed myself some time to take a break from working. And I traveled around Southeast Asia after volunteering and, and really just tried to immerse myself as much as possible and take cooking classes and stay with people in their homes instead of at hotels or hostels. So I, I got to stay at a homestay with the Hmong people in Vietnam in the north and, you know, see them cook a full meal from scratch, from killing the chicken to creating the stew in, you know, over a wood burning oven. So, uh, it, it was a really great experience. I stayed in a monastery in Myanmar um, and slept in a giant room alongside the monks and we ate a communal meal together. So I was, I was just so uh, in awe of all of their traditional foods and, and the culture there. And it made me realize that I didn't, I knew, I knew about our, our traditional foods from the Balkans, but I didn't know how to prepare them. And when I came back from Southeast Asia, I started working at a nonprofit in New York called Charity Water as a brand partnerships manager, and also just started to do a little bit more research into foods from the Balkans, um, tried to ask my parents uh, if I could watch them in the kitchen, take some notes. And, you know, just try to learn more about our heritage. And uh, after a few years, my grandmother had passed, my grandmother who was living in the States passed away. And I knew I, I really had to write down all of these recipes that were passed down in my family because soon, you know, I would be the gatekeeper. And I started going and spending time with my aunt who was previously taking care of my grandmother, who was also a pastry chef. And uh, we, we would spend Sundays baking together and we would make dishes that my grandmother made all the time, uh, traditional Albanian dishes from Kosovo. And one Sunday we were making burek and just talking about how hard it was to find in the market. And, and there were some places where you could find it, but 
it didn't taste super homemade. Most, most people didn't use butter. They used margarine or just vegetable oils. Um, and it didn't taste the same. So we started Balkan Bites almost as an experiment and, and just kind of an idea to service our own community and give them the Burek that they grew up eating. So we started catering small events in New York and New Jersey, pretty much with people we knew, family, friends. And then we saw that it was, you know, we got a great response and feedback and people would go to those events who weren't from the Balkans and they really liked it. So we started to do outdoor pop-up markets in New York and we did the uh, Queens Night Market. We did the Urban Space Holiday Market, another urban space market. And that's when we saw that people from the U.S. and actually from all over the world, there were tons of tourists, loved Burek. And they, you know, they just needed a little bit of education to learn what it was, learn what filo dough was and where the Balkans were. And, you know, once they tried it, they were hooked. What were some of those early responses uh, from people who were tasting it for the first time at an event, um, you know, where ostensibly they were going to taste new things, especially in the Queen's Night Market mm -hmm. and, and some of the other markets you mentioned? That's that's often the reason why people go. Um, yeah. What kind of feedback did you get early on? Well, at first we advertised it as a, uh, I, th I think we said flaky phyllo pastry. So a lot of people would come to our stand at the end of the night when they had tried all the savory dishes and they thought that we only offered desserts. So we realized, no, we need to better communicate that this is savory. It's more of, you know, center of the plate item. So we changed our marketing to say savory, I think, handheld phyllo pies. And so people started coming over in the beginning. They were curious to see what this was. We also started uh, giving out samples, cutting it up into small pieces with toothpicks pre-COVID. And uh, that people loved it. They were like, this is kind of like a croissant or uh, people from Russia or Armenia and, and different parts of the Middle East had a similar product that they grew up eating. So it was really awesome to hear people's stories with a similar dish. So, you know, they'd always say, oh, my grandmother made something like this. I haven't had it since she passed away. And, you know, this is the closest I've, I've tasted. And, you know, that that meant a lot to us and really gave us the uh, motivation to keep going. And we knew we had something special that uh, people haven't found in, in other brands or restaurants. Are, was there a moment in that process where you decided I, I'm going to do this full time? This is my this is my thing, or or did it happen more gradually for you? Well, I was working both jobs, and we got accepted to the Urban Space Garment District Market, and that was six days a week. So I had to make a decision. And I decided to leave my job. And it was really difficult because up until that point, that was my dream job. I, I got to, you know, travel to Ethiopia. We helped build clean water projects for people. I really felt like I was making a difference. And, it, you know, this the, this was a huge risk. So I, I decided to take, take the leap and haven't looked back. But, um, yeah, it was really that, that market that drove drove me to go in full time.
Could, could you talk a little more about that, about making that decision, the decision to, to take the leap, as you put it? Because it, it is difficult. And, and I think especially for you, maybe more difficult than it is for other people coming from a job that you really loved. It wasn't a question of leaving something you didn't like to start something you did. Yeah. Um, which I think is often, you know, people are, they're motivated by not liking their current job to start something. Right. New, but, but that wasn't <laughs> the case for you. So how did, how did you, how did you make that decision? What were the pros and cons? How, what conversations did you have to, to get there? Well, um, I spoke a lot with my family, with my husband, uh, who was my boyfriend at the time. And I, I do come from a family of entrepreneurs. So they, they really pushed me and they're like, you know what, you can always go back to another job. This is, this is a really, you know, a really crucial time. You want to prove the concept. You have to go all in. It's not fair. And I felt like it wasn't fair to my aunt because she was all in. So for me to have one foot in and one foot out, I just felt like I was doing her a disservice. She's an incredible, incredibly talented pastry chef. And she took 10 basically over 10 years off to take care of my grandmother. So I really wanted to do this to also let her shine and share her amazing food with the world. So that was a huge motivator as well. And how did the two of you divide the business these days? So she's in charge of the kitchen and production, and I'm I'm doing kind of the business side of things, marketing, sales, uh, logistics, operations, uh, financial planning, all of that. Are there lessons that you learned having worked with, uh, you know, doing microfinance uh, in Southeast Asia? Were there lessons that you had learned working with entrepreneurs or small business owners there that you've been able to apply to your business here? Well, I, I, I know how powerful financing can be, and we've been really fortunate. We actually got two zero interest loans in the past year, and it's helped us just feel more comfortable. We've been able to hire some additional support um, with marketing and creative and in the kitchen. So it's, it's so important. And I think especially women are afraid to ask for it or, or don't really know how. And, and I think more than anything, my experience at Charity Water and, and with fundraising helped apply, helped me apply for these grants and look out for opportunities to help grow our business. What what impact has COVID had or what effect has COVID had on your business given that you were doing so much at big events prior? Um, and now, I mean, I know personally you, you sell online. Uh, so how, how have you pivoted or have you pivoted? What's, what's different about the business today than a year and a half ago? Yeah, we completely pivoted because pre-COVID we... I mean, eventually I wanted to sell a, a frozen packaged product because I saw people at the markets taking Arbor Rec home and, and actually reheating or baking it at home. So I knew that that was a possible channel that, and direction that we can go in. But when, you know, in March 2020, we thought we would be doing more outdoor markets, potentially have a place in a food hall and sell to restaurants, cafes, and coffee shops. We also did some corporate catering. So we had just finished the International Food Service uh, trade show last early last March, and a week later, everything shut down. So we, we really had no plan and took a few weeks off. Everything was shut down. 
but we were just itching to get back to the kitchen. We knew we had to figure out a way to save the business and, and do something. And we had a base of customers from these outdoor markets. Um, and we knew that the product could be frozen and baked at home because we would freeze it and bake it at the outdoor markets. So we just created a really simple packaging. It was just clear from Uline and, and I printed a label on my printer slapped it on, and then I took a picture, posted it on Instagram, and I said I would deliver for free all over New York and New Jersey, which I didn't realize how big those states were. Um, so we got responses from people, and they started ordering through Instagram. So we started, it, it was great because it really gave us purpose. Again, we got to go back to the kitchen. I got out of the house, started delivering, and uh, that, that grew and we started getting requests from outside of New York and New Jersey. So I had to figure out a way to do frozen shipping, which isn't fun, especially in the summer, and uh, create professional packaging, develop a online store. So we really did it within a matter of two months. Uh, packaging took a little bit longer. It took more like four months, but the online store was up and running and we were shipping nationwide within two months. So that really saved us, and we got uh, some great press. Luckily, last year we were in the New York Times and the New Yorker and an Eater, and people learned about us who weren't from the Balkans, which was really great. And they were just trying to – they wanted to try new food. Um, they loved that we were women-owned, small business. So people from all over the U.S. started ordering, and luckily that sustained us ever since. We, we've done maybe one pop-up since then. Um, and I think this is the direction the business is heading, uh, direct to consumer and, and hopefully we'll be in stores soon. All right. Uh, let's take a quick break. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. HRN is excited to unveil the new look of food radio. We have a brand new identity and a new website. Our site makes it easier than ever to discover new podcasts and dig through our archive of 15,000 episodes. It's been 12 years since HRN started broadcasting food radio, and we've made it this far thanks to the support of our global listening community. It's because of member donations that Why Food is on the air along with 40 other weekly shows. Your contributions gave HRN the security we needed to stay on the airwaves during the pandemic and are allowing us to reopen our studio. Becoming a monthly sustaining member of HRN shows me how much Why Food and Food Radio means to you. At HRN, we're investing in the future of food radio. To do the same, become a monthly sustaining member of HRN. When you do, you'll get access to our very special secret menu. We've gathered exclusive discounts and offers from some of our favorite food and beverage brands. Enjoy insider pricing on goods that will ship right to your door. Join our community of monthly donors and special deals will come your way throughout the summer. A gift of $5 or $10 a month gives our community the consistent stability it needs to keep the voice of America's food movement alive and thriving. Become a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org donate. And we're back. You're listening to Why Food. And my guest this week is Ariana Tolka, co-founder and CEO of Balkan Bites. Um, Ariana, before the break, we were talking a little bit about the process of introducing people from outside the Balkans or people who hadn't tasted bark before to this new dish. Um, could you talk a little bit about kind of the bigger cultural relevance of borax in the Balkans in general and, and some of the obstacles you face in, in introducing it to people who haven't tasted it before? 
Definitely. So Burke has, Burke, I would say is a staple food of the Balkans, definitely the most common street food that's eaten there. Um, it's also eaten at pretty much every family event and special occasion. So it's pretty ubiquitous. It has an interesting history. Uh, it, it's actually, it was brought from the Turks from the Ottoman empire to the Balkans and just it stuck. But, uh, initially the nomadic Turks of central Asia developed this, this dumpling almost that was made with uh, layered layered dough and then it was deep fried. So that was the first form of the burek. And as it traveled, it evolved and it became filled with different fillings and made in different shapes. So the spiral that we make is just one of the ways that you'll find burek. You can find it in a big kind of flat layered pie, um, slices, tiny little triangles, um, if you're familiar with Spanakopita from Greece, that's, you know, that's just one form of it. So it really spans so many different countries and has so many different names. And it, it's, it really evokes a lot of emotion for people because I think, especially people from the Balkans, um, a lot of them came to the U.S. as refugees and they they associate it with home. And so it brings up a lot of feelings of nostalgia. Um, it, I mean, there's there's so many stories I hear from people about how it, it that are super moving about how it really brings them back to their roots. Um, I got an email last week from a new customer who said, it's important for me to tell you that your Burex took me back in time. Nothing sweeter than biting into something that brings memories and tears. Um, so, you know, the Balkans have a really difficult history and they, there have, there's been genocide, there's been war, political instability. And unfortunately that is what the U S a lot of you know, people in the U S perceive the Balkans and, and people from the Balkans as, you know, a, a tough, I guess, a, a tough people. And there, there are many instances in movies or film where the villain is from the Balkans, like in the movie Taken. Um, so we, we're trying to destigmatize that and also just kind of change that narrative and show people how beautiful Balkan culture is, hopefully inspire them to travel to the Balkans and taste the food. Um, you know, people are familiar with Turkish food and Greek food, Mediterranean food, but there's amazing food from the Balkans that I think we're just starting to have a moment and get some momentum. And there are awesome restaurants popping up all over the country. We just did a collaboration with Balkan Treat Box in St. Louis. They make um, amazing dishes from the Balkans over uh, in a wood fire oven, the traditional way they make all of their dough fresh and their bread fresh every single day. So we, I, I think it's not just us, but all together, we're, we're really trying to change that narrative. Yeah. Uh, would you talk a little more about Balkan cuisine in general? What are some of the other iconic dishes? What did you grow up eating, you know, in, in family meals or, or celebrations as a kid? Yeah. So they're definitely regional specialties and I feel very lucky because I'm half Croatian and half Albanian from Kosovo. So I got to try many different dishes. Um, we would go to Croatia almost every summer and my grandparents there uh, had a beautiful garden. So we grew figs, grapes, cucumbers, lettuce, tomatoes, 
pretty much any vegetable that we ate was grown in the garden. And then my grandfather was a fisherman. So he would go out and catch small fish, octopus, um, calamari, and, you know, they would forage for, for wild vegetables too. So when uh, wild asparagus was in season, they would collect it and freeze it. So we would have eggs with wild asparagus in the morning. And the part of Croatia, Istria, where we're from, is where all the truffles are grown. So I got very spoiled. I thought truffles were just like any other mushroom, but that is not the case I know now. Um, so it just incredible, fresh, homemade food. My grandmother and I would make gnocchi together. There were a lot of Italian influences in that region. And then on my Albanian side, um, a lot of my family came to the U.S. Uh, right before the war started in Kosovo. So I got to know a lot of that food here through my grandmother, through my aunts. Um, and I would say that food's even heartier. A lot of stews, um, there's a dish called chivapi, which is really popular all over the Balkans, but it's basically a grilled sausage. It's made with either beef and pork or just beef um, and veal. So depending, there, there's a big Muslim population in the Balkans, so they wouldn't make it with the pork, but it's really good either way. And it's traditionally eaten with Ivar, which is a roasted red pepper spread um, and kaimak, which is so delicious. And you can find it here at some of the European stores, but it's best made fresh, but it's almost like a clotted cream. So you slowly boil the milk and simmer it for a few hours over a low heat. And then after you turn off um, the fire, you skim the cream off the top and leave it to chill and mildly ferment. So it, it's, it's better. It's way better than butter. And it, it's, typically eaten on samoon bread, which is um, kind of a pita bread almost, uh, really fluffy. And so that the Balkan treat box in St. Louis, they specialize in, in this dish and it's so good. So um, that that's one of my favorites. Um, and then a lot of sweets as well. So baklava, kadev also have that Turkish influence. Um, and are made in, you know, everyone has their own spin on it and, and, and made in a variety of ways. Yeah, I've always found Balkan cuisine to be so interesting. So many influences coming in from so many different places, both kind of geographically, but also historically. Yeah. Um, and, and such a wide range of flavors and ingredients, really light, really rich and savory, grilled, stewed. Um, yeah, I, I guess it doesn't get enough credit, I think. Yeah. What do you see as, as being the role of, of cuisine or, or in your it's kind of in, mm -hmm. in your context, marketing of, of Balkan food in changing people's perceptions of the Balkans in general? Like how do you how do you use food to get people to think differently about the region overall? Yeah, well, we, we hope to educate people through our website as well. So we have um, a little map of the Balkans and some information about the Balkans. We have a. Uh, a blog that we're working on. So we have different recipes from all over the, all over the Balkans. We're hoping to make some travel guides there. So we really want to encourage people to explore when they get on our site, not just purchase a bag of Burek. We have um, a history of the Balkans page. So we're, we're trying to grow that out and, and through social media as well, just share stories from, you know, different people from the Balkans. We will repost accounts on, on Instagram um, stories and, and different 
cost like traditional costumes from the the Balkans, art, different artists. Um, we need to create some Spotify playlists. That's on my to do list. But we really want and through our emails as well, just just to educate people as much as possible and and hopefully uh, get them to travel to the Balkans one day. Do you feel like it's working? Are people, uh, you know, are people changing their minds or changing their kind of general preconceptions about the region? I think so. I, I mean, I do think that we are, our um, customers are pretty open-minded and adventurous as it is, but, uh, you know, occasionally they'll, they'll hear about us from a family member and they won't even know where the Balkans were or uh, they they may never have tried filo dough before. So it, it's just a way to introduce them to the cuisine and then hopefully get them to learn more as time goes on. Yeah. Um, and you also came into this, as you mentioned earlier, with a, a background in nonprofits. Um, how, how do you feel like that has influenced the way that you've built the business or, or in what ways have you kind of no pun intended, baked some of those uh, those <laughs> ideals into into the business uh, as it stands today. Yeah, well, I definitely wanted to make sure that we were helping people even as a small business. So um, two years ago, there was an earthquake in Albania and we did a big fundraiser and we donated a percentage of sales from the business uh, to help fund re uh, recovery efforts. And then last year after COVID, we realized, you know, how how much food insecurity there was just here in the U.S. So we donated um, to different organizations like Rethink Food, who we're going to be working with again this year, and that they're based in New York, but that they help alleviate food insecurity, and they actually have a pay what you want cafe in Brooklyn. So we're donating some product to them, and then we're also going to continue making financial contributions as well. And are there aspects of the, the business too, or, or I, I guess it, it all, it all comes together, right? It's all, it's all kind of part of the same conversation, how you're, who you're working with and, and how you're marketing the, how you're marketing the products. Exactly. And, you know, we, we hope to be able to make more product that we can donate and, and help people either, you know, donating it at no charge or providing it at cost. So it's just a really wholesome, convenient meal. And I, I think it could help a lot of people who don't have the time to cook. Um, and, and, you know, it's nutritious as well. So I think a lot more to do there. And we're, we're always looking for opportunities to, to help. And so we feel, you know, really passionately about helping people in the Balkans as well. So when there's a fundraiser or an event, we'll donate product. And that's you know, related to like I think last week we donated to build uh, helping build the biggest library in Albania. So, yeah, there's 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 always something going on, and, and we're trying to help as much as we can. Um, do you have any uh, new flavors in the works or new flavors that you've been trying to get right but haven't haven't quite been able to nail? We have a new collaboration coming up. So in uh, two, I guess on July twenty sixth. We're launching a, a limited edition flavor with seed and mill and raka. So we're, we're, we made a sweet burek with halva and organic cacao nibs. It's, it's really delicious. So we're really excited about that. That sounds amazing. Um, let's do some rapid fire fun questions before we wrap up. Um, right. If you were a vegetable, what vegetable would you be? A cauliflower. Uh, say more. 
So I, I think it's really versatile. And, you know, I think because I've, I've kind of had to navigate different communities and different groups in my life that I'm almost like a cauliflower. So if I'm in Croatia, I'll start speaking Croatian and kind of blend in. But, you know, if I'm here, I have, you know, my, my American background as well. So that's why I think I'm like a cauliflower. Yes, it's super versatile vegetable. Uh, no, yeah. I don't think anybody's ever said it before, but it's a it's a great answer. It, uh, it spans a lot of cuisines and cultures. It, yeah. And, yeah, cool. Um, how about your desert island kitchen tools? What do you what do you always have on hand? What do you what do you bring with you to a desert island? I think a cast iron skillet, so I can make a fire and easily cook, and uh, a good chef's knife. All right, good answers. Um, what uh, are some of the lessons that you've learned from your aunt working in a, a multi generational family business? Uh, I think patience. She is super patient and, you know, I want everything to be done quickly, but she believes in slow food and I do as well. But sometimes we have a deadline or, you know, we have to ship out on Monday and, you know, I'm always looking for ways to kind of speed things up, but it, the dough has a life of its own and you have to let it do its thing. And I think the dough has taught me that. And she has also taught me that. That's a great lesson. Uh, I could I could learn it uh, myself too. I think. Um, what What about a great meal that you've had that cost less than five or ten bucks? Something uh, while you were traveling in Southeast Asia or somewhere else that that has really stuck with you? I would say at the Queen's Night Market, Burmese bites. Oh yeah. Amazing. Oh yeah. <laughs> the Queen's Night Market in general is just an answer to that question. You know, right. Full stop. Right. Like everything there is so good. Yeah. yeah. Um. Where can our listeners find your work, order your Borex, follow you on social media? You can order our Borex at balkanbites.co and on social media, balkanbitesnyc. And, and just a little plug. I mean, my, my favorites are probably the mushroom and goat cheese and the potato and onion, I would say. Those are, uh, yeah, very highly recommended. <laughs> Thank you. Time. Um, Ariana, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you also to Armin Spengen, our amazing sound engineer. Thank you to the Red Crickets for our theme song. Um, you can email us, whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. You can follow us on social at whyfoodpodcast. You can reach me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. Uh, and you can reach Valerie via Instagram at foodie in New York. Ariana, thanks for joining me and uh, talk to you all next week. Thanks so much. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.